0: This episode is sponsored by Monograph and ArcIT. You'll hear more about them later on in the episode.
1: I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing.
0: Together we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome, Welcome to, to Practice, Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine.
1: Hey, Evelyn. Hey, Disruptors.
0: This season, we were hoping to bring in more practitioners that are creating interesting business models around their practices. So we are really excited to have Christian Stainer from Stainer Architects on today to talk about everything from architecture, but also hospitality and food systems.
1: We're excited because Christian's thinking about the way he's designing his practice a little bit differently than the traditional architecture practice model. So welcome, Christian, to the podcast. We like to kick it off by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So uh, tell us about your background and Stainer Architects.
2: Sure. Thank you so much for the introduction and, and having me. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm an architect and I have a, a, an architecture practice uh, in Los Angeles called Stainer Architects. Uh, We're in the Echo Park neighborhood, just sort of to the north of downtown LA. And much of the work that we have in our practice, uh, as you mentioned, uh, focuses on architecture, uh, sort of in and around food systems. So the spaces that food is consumed and grown and distributed and produced. um, And specifically, this is for nonprofit educational and cultural institutions, as well as um, a couple of food service related uh, and hospitality related projects that we um, are the developer of and and architect and actually operator of. So we are sort of an unusual model for um, architecture practice and I can talk a little bit later about sort of where that came about and and why we have migrated in in that direction of of practicing architecture. the projects that we do for clients uh, tend to, well, right now include, we have a ground-up uh, dining hall for a local arts college. Um, we're working on a performance uh, space and, and uh, headquarters for a long-running music education program that's uh, based in Los Angeles. We have a, a multifamily residential project for faculty, a uh, workforce housing uh, development project that's underway, and a number of other sort of more conventional architecture projects in which there is a uh, an external third-party client um, to us. And then we also have our in-house development projects. So right now we have a wine bar and wine shop uh, that focuses on production of California um, natural wines called Tilda, which we developed and operate and designed everything from the interiors and the Entitlements through to the graphics and uh, branding and, and web, and then we have a, a Roman Italian restaurant called Pacetti, and then a couple of other projects that are at different stages in the pipeline. So about three right now.
1: So I want to pause because I'm I'm really curious, like to know how did you get into hospitality and food systems as your path in architecture? That's kind of a distinct path, and I'm very curious also <laughs> to hear about like. During the pandemic, I'm sure that this has been an area of um, work that's been majorly disrupted. So I I hope you can speak to that also.
2: Yes, uh, disruptive or disrupted is (laughs) an appropriate um, term. Um, It actually came out of the, the previous disruption that was, let's say, more impacted architects. And that was back in 2008. I finished grad school at the GSD in, I guess, May or June of that of that year and by I don't know earlier mid-September Lehman Brothers had collapsed and the subprime mortgage crisis unfolded right as I was going into into practice and I just actually started practicing on my own at that time Um, and ended up in academia with a lot of my my peers um, because that was the one place that you could get employment and so that experience of of going through the, the subprime mortgage crisis and its impact in architecture made me acutely aware of sort of the cyclical nature of the, of the practice. And my, my father's um, also an architect. And so I'd seen that firsthand over my, my upbringing, how tied architecture was to, especially in Southern California, the boom and bust cycles of the real estate markets. So from that, I wanted to find something that would allow for me to practice that was more stable than architecture, uh, but that was also uh, affiliated in some way with the work that we could do. So we could support ourselves not with client-based work solely, and also to be able to work with with clients that were not extractive in their nature. So we weren't there simply to make value for um, for for other people. Um, but if we were going to make value, that was going to be for you know organizations predominantly nonprofits or for-profit entities that were in some ways contributing to the communities that they were in or advancing a mission rather than just there to maximize their bottom line and get out. So from within academia, the, the, my, my research was really around the geography of natural resources and natural resource extraction. And I was teaching first in Los Angeles, and then I was recruited as a senior track faculty member at the University of Michigan. In which I was commuting back and forth between Los Angeles and Ann Arbor, um, trying to run a practice in LA and trying to oh, wow. well and teaching in in Michigan, which was was great. Um, and then eventually ended up at, at ASU for a short period of time before returning to to practice full time. But my research was really around like mining and quarries and effectively the raw material that's used in the production of buildings and the fact that within the profession and within academia or within the discipline we're so focused on the, the site at which the building is realized that we do, we overlook these sort of invisible geographies beyond that location that are, that are impacted greatly by the aggregate that gets pulled out of the ground and the humans that are involved in the manufacturing of nails and screws and, and so forth. So I, this is a long explanation, but I became very interested in the sort of invisible aspects of architecture, the like non, non non-visual components of it. And that started to include smell and taste and and other like um, sensorial experiences of, um, of space and uh, went very deep into, to olfaction and and smell with a friend and and practice partner, um, Jennifer Bonner, who teaches at, at the GSD right now. And from that, investigation, um, I became very involved in wine and in food. So I started teaching uh, courses at Michigan around that. I, I taught a, a food studies prog- uh, course within the liberal arts college. I taught some seminars around food and architecture and eventually taught a, a traveling studio in which we looked at landscapes of agriculture and food production, sort of from a conservation perspective In Italy and um, Croatia and California that became the basis for the first hospitality project that we did, Tilda Wine. So that's a, a long series of, of explanations of how it, you know the, the projects of initially an intellectual project became a sort of applied research project into a business.
1: It's interesting to hear you talk about the recession impacting your navigation towards this path to find a little bit of stability in this cyclical cycle of architecture. And now, you know, the next major disruption that we're facing with the pandemic, it's certainly, you know, I think food supply is definitely something that people are talking about and certainly the impact on the hospitality industry and people that are engaged in taking care of our communities through food. So, I'm curious, how have you seen that disruption impacting your practice or are the types of clients that you're trying to support still able to move forward with their vision?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, We're actually, we've been working for the past maybe six or eight months on a resource that's available off of our website called Tools and Utensils, in which we've been trying to look at best practices for developing food systems related projects, specifically within educational and cultural settings. So teaching uh, spaces that that connect to like STEM learning or like on-site dining facilities uh, for uh, small liberal arts colleges and and, um, universities that are integrated with some of the academic work that's taking place. Uh, A lot of schools have, have started to put together multidis- multidisciplinary food studies, ecology, sustainability programs with an awareness that these are, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very narrow focus for us to take as architects. Um, I wouldn't say it's a specialization, like it's its really this sort of a, a really a, a passion from the experience of how do you design for something that is so specific um, as an architect, but also from the experience of running and, and seeing these larger systems at work from an operator's perspective. And so the, yeah, tools and utensils, which is is our sort of attempt to disseminate some of that information. I think what's what's also really sort of important and that the pandemic opened up in, in many ways is uh, there's, you know, the place that architects are often involved in, in food related work, which is restaurants and hospitality type projects. Uh, But there's a huge world of where most of our food comes from that is not really looked at by architects, such as everything from grocery stores to agricultural sites, which are increasingly happening inside buildings. I mean, a few years ago, it seemed every other architect was running after cannabis-related projects because of the vast amounts of money that were available <laughs> as that was being um, quasi-legalized. But a lot of other agriculture is going into inside spaces and and just food security, um, nutrition as a as a public health consideration. There's a lot of these different spaces that we're trying to, to work within. And and surprisingly, the typologies become very broad, even as the, the, the focus and the goal becomes quite narrow and specific.
0: I'm wondering if we can back it up a little bit, because you guys are doing so much, I'd like to just understand kind of the makeup of your team. And how do you then build a team that kind of can help support that, that practice? And then My follow-up question is probably going to be to like what extent do you even use your your own projects to further explore and prototype and test what then you might implement on behalf of your clients? But but let's start about hearing a little bit more about Stainer.
2: Absolutely. I I think we're still figuring we're still figuring that out. It's been a long process to figure out how to build the infrastructure to be able to practice atypically. And you know that, that infrastructure is both the people we have in the office, but also the consultants and the advisors and other other people that are involved. And so, we have our architecture practice is is quite small. There's usually between seven and nine uh, people in, in dedicated within our architecture office, and and they're involved in food studies or food food program related work. There also, we have a, a, a small sort of branch or identity of our practice that's focused on hillside residences called Sum of All Parts. Um, so a few people are sort of actively involved in, in those sort of smaller scale projects. And there's surprisingly a lot of overlap in the domestic sphere of you know, a domestic kitchen to understanding sort of how that fits within, within larger, um, more institutional commercial projects. And we, we also build a few of our projects. Um, so we have a general contractor's license. We have another entity, a couple of staff members right now, uh, two to three full-time people that are in, involved in construction, maintenance, management of, of facilities. And then we have a hospitality sort of division. It's technically outside of our office, but uh, we have a... a chef and general managers and beverage director and uh, sous chefs and stuff that that exists there and and operate and are responsible for with my partner who's involved in that as well the the hospitality sort of activities so we actually share a lot of the same physical spaces but they're sort of discrete activities and they, they do overlap and and enforce one another so when we're working on a project for a client um maybe it's a Institutional project will pull in, you know, people from an operational side that are in-house to, to give advice on how best to, you know, arrange a space or deal with flow or think about the sort of operational side of, of it and not design in a vacuum for that.
0: Which one of your projects came first? So you mentioned Tilda and I want to, is it Bassetti? Am I saying that right?
2: Uh, a yes, it Sorry. means uh, little, little kisses in, in the uh-huh.
0: but then you I don't think we've actually ever even touched on the desert wave house, which is which is another kind of extension of what Stainer has been doing. So, so talk to us like, kind of about maybe in chronological order, like how how those became a part of of the operations and of the practice,
2: yeah. I mean, in 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 parallel with. Uh, this this sort of um, conceptualized develop design operate model that we've we have is uh, we we have a uh, hospital small hospitality project um, in the Coachella Valley called the Desert Wave, which is a experimental modernist house from 1954 55 by a somewhat lesser known. Um, architect uh, who is very influential in the, the development of desert modernism in Southern California called Walter S. White. And this was a, effectively a one-off experimental project that subsequently was put on the National Register of Historic Places and was slated to be demolished um, when the state of California ended their redevelopment agency program. And the city um, had, had purchased the property and had been sitting on it for a couple of decades and so we purchased it from the city uh, with the intent of de- developing it into an event space and sort of larger hospitality complex. We restored the building according to the National Register requirements, and we worked with the city to come up with um, entitlements and sort of the economic feasibility for the project to be made publicly accessible. So that we opened also sort of February, January, February of 2020. And we're just now starting to do the sort of second phase of, of the um, the development of the roughly third of an acre site to host events and, and other activities. And it's, it, I mean, it, one of the f- really fun things about hospitality and food related stuff, I was talking to a colleague of mine a couple days ago, as we were coming back from a site visit, and realized that the number of people that were going to go, through, you know, probably experience one of the the projects that we did for a private client was going to be equal to the number of people that might come through one of our more sort of hospitality projects within the course of just one week. You know, so just the the difference between a private project and a public project in terms of how much engagement it has uh, is is really quite dramatic. And we actually have in in process. Uh, should start construction next next month. We're a, an equity partner in a um, small 25 key hotel that is in the Eastern Sierras and a, a drive to market. And so we have a partner in that case that is a sort of up and coming hotel developer that's coming from hotel finance side of things. Um, and we're engaged not just in uh, interiors and, and uh, construction management and, and permitting and all of that, but also in working through to the financing as a limited partner
1: for for that project. I definitely want to dive further into this case study on Tilda because I think that that kind of is, I think that that's a significant project in your portfolio that demonstrates kind of the innovation and the you know unique path that you guys are trying to bridge between these two worlds of architecture and food. So let's talk about the model for that and how you guys got there in terms of developing that project
2: yeah it's it's funny because it's actually a very small project but i think in in terms of like floor area i think it's it's roughly five or six hundred square feet all told but the the fact that maybe the 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 pandemic happening when it did happen in relation to the to, to that particular business was a really interesting model because i think we had to obviously like any any restaurant adapt to the circumstances, but I think we had maybe an extra benefit as architects to be able to come in and think spatially about how to make that adaptation and really keep it part of the experience of moving from a, from, from a, a wine bar with, with food and on-site consumption and effectively sort of like a party every night to being separated from our clientele either through internet sales or, or behind glass and, and how to keep the experience of uh, certainly in the depths of the pandemic, like leaving your house to go buy something and then screw it back to your house because of the atmosphere of unknown at that moment. We did a bunch of different pivots, I'd say sort of earlier than a lot of people to figure out ways to, to keep personal connection between our staff and uh and our customers. And so, for instance, we set up all of the merchandise and and retail behind glass windows that we had and, you know, did phone call uh, ordering in which people could actually stand and face another person and not be, you know, in another Zoom (laughs) arrangement, but still not share the same atmospheric space. I think we were probably earlier on in realizing that, you know, a a virus that was communicated through people's lungs was going to be an issue with airflow and keeping people in separate spaces and so we made it through the pre-vaccine pandemic without, you know, any of our staff getting sick which was pretty amazing by keeping everyone in different spaces and, you know, in- improving airflow and all of those things.
0: Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode. Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture one design studio at a time.
1: Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help.
0: Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With our awesome gant, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio.
1: Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget.
0: Be proactive with Monograph. Did you know new business was affected by ransomware every 14 seconds in 2019 and will continue to be every 10 seconds by the end of 2021? It's easy to assume that it'll never happen to you, but this sobering statistic highlights the uncomfortable truth that new businesses are affected by ransomware attacks every day.
1: 34% of businesses affected by ransomware took a week or longer to regain access to their data. When calculating the cost of ransomware attacks, it's vital that we remember the cost of operating without access to your data.
0: ArcIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArcIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business.
1: Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with Practice Disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats.
0: Their latest tip is to Protect your email from social engineering and phishing threats using advanced threat protection solutions like MimeCast.
1: Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com/pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. There's layers of architectural design in what you guys did with this project. So obviously, the the architecture itself, the spatial layout, is something that is at the core of what it means to be an architect. But the additional layers that I'm looking at through this process of you know, really having a say in the development and the uh, product and branding and the construction, and then also thinking about how the business pivoted during the pandemic. You know, it's, it's a combination of expanding what it means to be an architect and offer new service lines, but also to expand your problem solving into all these other different areas that allow you to, I mean, definitely be more entrepreneurial about the project as a whole. So it seems like it's such an important case study for your business and kind of, I guess I'm curious about the innovation that you're testing out through trying to be so engaged in all those different layers.
2: Okay. Yeah. It's funny because I guess we haven't thought of it in, in such <laughs> in an in, in intentional way. It's just sort of made sense to like, you know, we're going to spend three hours arguing with the contractor, trying to get that person to, to, to get what, we want out of the, the project, why don't we just do it ourselves? Why don't we spend those three hours and the risk that's involved with you know, hiring someone and the profit that we can keep and invest back into the, to the business. And so whether it's, you know, whether it's constructing it or whether it's operating it, you know, to have a tenant is, is a risk. And, and a sort of relationship of you know, blind trust that the tenant is going to operate a portion of your building in a in a good way and is going to be solvent and it's going to have the cash flow and wherewithal to 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 keep the rent um, payments coming in. And so a lot of this has just been in a sense sort of a, a risk management. And that's not necessarily just like insurance related risk, but also like there's an opportunity for us to learn something. And so we dive in and you know learn portion of lighting design. And also in the course of, of that, learn that maybe we're not best suited to be doing food service consulting or that we can, but it's not the best use of our time. Or you know, we, at least we know what the requirements are. And so when we then do bring in outside consultants who can do that work more efficiently, or because we don't have the staff to do it, or we don't frankly want to do it, we're at least sort of holistically aware of what the demands are on other people. And so we can then manage their work more effectively. So I think we've moved from sort of this attitude of like, we just have to do everything in-house and ourselves in order to minimize the expense upfront of effectively building you know, a variety of startup businesses, architecture and and then the businesses that that operate as well, um, and we're maturing hopefully towards um, having more people to to take those demands and and really be looking at it from a, a much higher level perspective, in which we're not so sort of in the in the trenches ourselves.
0: Obviously, from your your background and your teaching, there was a focus on food systems, but. Like listening to everything that you're talking about, starting a whole bunch of other businesses, being an equity partner in the development of a, a hotel, like a, a hotel in the future, like that. To in order for you to be able to do what you're passionate about, you have to kind of take on and learn a lot of other things too. So how have you, like one, how do you find the time, and then two, like how do you make those judgments? maybe diving a little bit in, in the risk, but I, I don't think a lot of architects first pivot to like fighting with a general contractor is we need to get our general contractor's license and let's do this ourselves <laughs> either. So why do you think you kind of take things on the way you do?
2: Good question. Um, so there's a couple of questions in there, right? The first being, let's say the, the experience gaps or, or having to learn sort of by doing. And and I will say that this has been the last couple of years has been very, very challenging for for restaurants, just as an example of one thing that I'm involved in. And we've we've been able to get through it. Luckily, I think we're gonna make it through the rest of the the the, the remaining bumps in the road that that are certainly still to come. But I will say that architecture is so much more challenging. <laughs> I mean, just as a profession to to figure out from a from a financial perspective, it's than than restaurants in New York, all the sort of you know, thin labor margins and the percentage of restaurants that go belly up within the first year and so forth. But architecture just from a business perspective is a really challenging a service business like ours, is especially in a moment in which we, you know, the the people who who financially are the, the masters of our social universe are able to scale their activities in a way that architects just have no potential of doing. You know, like we're the tech world <laughs> and the architectural world could not be more different in terms of how you can say license or multiply the, the effort that goes into what potential outcomes come come. Come out. Um, and so part of it has been trying to figure out how, how not to leave architectural practice entirely, but to uh, adapt the, the practice model in order for it to be more reasonable to the risk and the effort and the demands that, that, that the, the profession has. And we haven't been able to figure out how to like remove those. It's still a very demanding, very sort of risk involved profession. I guess in terms of my own sort of Impact or like why why I've been more willing to to take this on. I after grad school sort of decided whether I was going to move to Europe and take a conventional job in a fancy office that was doing big institutional work. Wondering sort of when you know I would be able to break off on my own, either with a project or try to claw my way up into to partnership, um, or I could take a leap right when I had the least number of sort of obligations on, on myself right out of school. and so I, I did the latter and maybe that as a result, that sort of fighting instinct has continued on in the 12 years since since I've been out of school. Yeah, I think I think that I think as a gay man in architecture, it's you're sort of used in some ways to be on the, per- the sort of fringes or periphery and, and figure out how to adapt there, um, especially in construction, something that hasn't evolved with the rest of society. Um, and so just I think I think there is also an attitude sort of internally of like trying to you know being being okay with being on on the edges and not being the sort of typical typical practice model.
1: I feel like we're asking you questions that maybe you haven't slowed down to think about because you're so busy being the entrepreneur, trying to build this towards the vision that you have, that it's not unintentional. It's just subconscious, like what your pursuit is perhaps, and that it's behind this greater vision that you have. But it what what stood out to us and the reason that we really wanted to talk to you is just the tenacity that you have to try to do something different. Most people don't take risks like that, let alone in architecture. It's really rare to find practices out there that want to do things so differently and that will follow through on that to realize it through built projects and actually continue their growth of their practice?
2: Yeah, I think the maybe something that I didn't realize in the outset is just how much effort goes into establishing the foundations that are needed in order to even try to start doing this. It's just, you know, architecture is a very slow-moving Pursuit <laughs> restaurants are almost the, the complete opposite, and that sort of from one night to the next it's it's a new opportunity to sort of reinvent what you 're doing or make adjustments and I think that there's not a lot of models to look to I mean alloy in new York is is amazing as a as an architect embedded within a, a development um, company they have a lot of financial resources in order to do that we haven't been as, you know, <laughs> as, as well financed as that, we've had to, to be very scrappy um, uh, about it. But yeah, it's been, it's part of the challenge has actually been one of communication and something we've been working very actively on in terms of when there isn't a model that you can point to that matches you one-to-one, how do you explain what you're doing to, to clients? How do you not confuse them? I think we still very much do confuse our clients or prospective clients uh, about sort of what, what we're doing and, and how to, to make sense of us in, in a soundbite.
0: So let's go a little bit deeper on that and, and talk about m- maybe one of the projects that you're working on. I know Haley mentioned the D- Deep Springs College, but um, we can circle back to anything that is most top of mind for you. It's, it's interesting to, to me that in all of your pursuits that you've actually stayed so close to practice, and you actually have kind of a traditional practice model in your firm. So, one, what keeps that kind of passion? And maybe, maybe it's a second generation like commitment to the architecture and the built environment. I don't, I don't know. But like, what, you know, what keeps that passion going? And then, what project are you most excited about right now?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So we're in some ways a very I mean. We're a very traditional architecture practice in, in the way that we're structured. We do comprehensive architectural services. We um, you know we do all of our CDs in house, and we write our own specs. And we're on drive sites, even if we're not the general contractor. Um, quite often in doing construction management or observations, and often because of our clients are nonprofit organizations that are on the smaller side, they rely heavily on us as do our our private clients for residential work on sort of additional construction management and and support because of our experience in that. The project that we've been working on and and to to say it's a long running project, I think it's maybe your four or five, no, five or six at this point, specifically one for for Deep Strength College is a, a, a dining hall for their campus, um, which is located to a small liberal arts college, 26 students, coeducational, not a religious organization. It was founded in, in 1917 by a very wealthy industrialist who made a huge amount of money in um, the distribution of alternating power throughout the American West. Um, and he, he purchased a ranch uh, just north of Death Valley in a very, very remote location and started an experimental college there to to train uh, students for sort of public service, broadly defined. So a number of of students go on to be um, in academia, but also uh, public service, uh, such as ambassadors or serve in Congress or are firefighters or like very, very um, sort of um, open interpretation of what it means to, to give back to the community. So we've designed, um, working with uh, this very uh, democratic organization of students and faculty members and uh, administrators and trustees and and donors, a new dining hall facility, which is really the sort of center of um, community life on the campus. The students all live on campus. The the faculty all live in campus. The nearest town, which has about 3,000 people, is is about an hour's drive um, over. Mountain Pass, they're very, very remote, very intentional community in which the students are involved in all of the faculty hiring and, and student missions and day to day operations at the college, which is also on a ranch. So they produce a huge amount of really all of the food that they produce on uh, that they consume rather on um, on campus. And we've designed a facility that allows for them to, to preserve a lot of that food, to process, you know, dairy products. Um, eggs and milk they have on, on site, store it uh, for the rest of the year. Um, uh, they, they grow a lot of alfalfa for the cattle that they have. So a lot of meat and pork and, and other um, products that they slaughter on site and then um, break down within that facility. So it's about halfway through rough framing. We have a, we're, we're doing that construction management advising for that and there's a general contractor who's local and it should be completed uh, the next about four to five months.
0: Exciting, so I know you kind of mentioned what's next for Stainer, but do you have any thoughts beyond <laughs> or other pivots that you're thinking of of making in the near future?
2: We've spent a lot of time getting a lot of these infrastructural pieces in place in order to, to then start to scale so that's been not necessarily scaled architecture practice um, i think that we'll try to remain small or relatively small uh, but to to be able to scale the the work that we do and um, to scale the the number of outlets that we have for sort of a, a, on an operational side and, you know one of the the real challenges i think you alluded to it is how do you how do you actually be doing, how, how is it possible to do architecture while also keeping track of all of the other components? I mean, just, just the business side of architecture practice is sort of an incursion into actually being involved in design and construction and all of those things. When you layer onto that, you know, the the extra number of insurance policies that have to be dealt with, and you know, attorneys for specialized food service, and and other you know, construction, and then on top of that, the 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 payrolls that have to be run, and the um, HR related stuff that, that you have to do. Part of the challenge of architecture practice right now, as well as really any any other type of of small businesses, how do you get to a scale at which you can share those? demands and resources like, across other people. And so we're really trying to figure out how, how the architectural practice fits within some shared, shared resources, whether, I mean, this is very very banal, <laughs> um, but maybe gives a, a impact or like gives a, a background into the demands that are required in order to do the fun stuff or the like visual stuff that, that get photographed and put on websites and, and so forth.
1: We do want to like ask one really important last question, which is, you know, we we are trying to kind of explore change in the industry through a lot of different angles. And so we wanted to hear your main idea or lesson on change that you think is needed in the practice of architecture that could be passed forward to architects, emerging professionals and industry instructors who are listening to the show and looking for ideas on change. You know, it's a big question.
2: <laughs> you know, one, one of the things that, that I discovered, well, I guess there's two things. One, in sort of the experience in academia, there were two takeaways that imprinted themselves in me from, from my time teaching, which I absolutely loved. One of them was just there was a generational difference between me and my peers coming into academia and a previous generation that had been there. And the opportunities and the sort of finances of the academy were so different between those two generations. And I, I think that's probably true as well as, as a second generation practitioner. The world that my father you know, experienced as, a, as an architect is a very different one than the one that we live in now as, as someone you know, effectively starting a relatively new practice. I think the other half of it was, especially at, at ASU, I became very aware of just how academia was needing to change. The, the financial model that um, existed was was really being impacted by management consulting <laughs> and all that came with it. And I think architecture has been very resistant to the fact that, in the end, you know, you have to have money to keep the lights on and keep payroll paid. And that's something that is a struggle I'm sure for every practice at one way or another. And so really, how do you not make changes to the way you practice? Because the, the existing model that's taught in ProPract courses, um, that's sort of the default, the one size fits all, it actually it doesn't work. I mean, it's people keep doing it, but it doesn't work. And I don't think that there's the possibility of of matching what was maybe feasible 30 years ago in setting up a practice to today. Um, And and there's probably a reason that a lot of the architecture practices that are um, becoming more and more visible in the U.S. are actually not run by architects, or whether it's the large multidisciplinary, multinational um, consulting companies with lots of acronyms, or it's artists who have moved into the architecture domain and are, you know, getting the projects that would typically go to, to, to architects, because they are approaching it, the, the art world has been aware of money and the powers of money, and like, not, not for greed or anything like that, but just that that's, that is part of the, the element of what it means to to have a business and, and be practicing. So I think the, the takeaway that I would have is that you have to come up with new new models for practicing because there's really not another option, unfortunately. And so it would be really fun to see <laughs> more diversity within architecture practice models. Um, and I think that's probably going to come through more diversity within the profession overall, as it hopefully forces people to rethink the, the
1: default modes of practice. I love that response. That's so great. I totally agree. And I think that I, I'm following that line from teaching all the way into practice, into entrepreneurship. And I think that's definitely spoken with some true experience on both sides.
2: Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> There's no question about that. But I mean, it's isn't, isn't the thrill of doing architecture and part of part of what we do is not know what the outcome is gonna be. I mean we try to control it as much as possible and maybe obsessively, but in the end, like we are one of the few professions that don't have a direct creation of what we produce. Um, you know, attorneys write their their attorney work product and accountants do the numbers behind their tax filings and artists you know, used to squeeze the paint onto the canvas. Maybe now they have a whole sort of army of people who produce the work for them. But we have so many different sort of layers apart from what we do that from, from the start, we are engaging in some thrilling undertaking of not knowing how the end result is going to be and trying to, trying to negotiate and, and manage it towards what, what we hope it will be.
0: Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us.
1: Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarchitcom slash PD to set up your free 15 minute cybersecurity assessment or custom solutions for your design firm. Hi Disruptors, if you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com podcast.
0: Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com community. Our social media handle is at practice of arch. That's at practice of A-R-C-H. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to
1: say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com.
0: Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.